Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with William Sticksroot and Ned Johnson on What Do You Say? First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the parenting or psychology category for episode number 123 with Michaeline Duclef on Hunt, Gather, Parent. I'm Michaeline Duclef, author of Hunt, Gather, Parent, what ancient cultures can teach us about the lost art of raising happy, helpful little humans. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. William Sticksrude is a clinical neuropsychologist and a faculty member at Children's National Medical Center and George Washington University Medical School. Ned Johnson is the founder of Prep Matters and the co-author of Conquering the SAT. Together, they co-wrote the bestseller, The Self-Driven Child, and they're back at it with another good one. It's called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Stress Tolerance, Motivation, and a Happy Home. Gentlemen, thank you for the time. Bill, how are you today? I'm wonderful. How about you? I'm great, thank you. And Ned, thank you for the time. How are you? I'm terrific. I'm delighted to be with you today. Uh, The pleasure is all mine, Ned. And uh, just to let you guys both know up front, I take special interest in parenting books right now because I'm dealing with a seven and a five-year-old at home, which obviously (laughs) uh, poses uh, its own unique set of challenges. Uh, For you guys, uh, as y'all are getting back together to write another book about parenting, Bill, was there a particular age group that you were aiming for with this one, or should this really cover the gambit for parents who are dealing with kids, whether they're four or five years old, all the way up through teenage years? just trying to better understand uh, how to communicate with them. Yeah. So in our first book, uh, The Self-Driven Child, uh, we, we, we made the point that it's so important for young people to have a sense of control of their own lives, starting from the time that they're pretty young, in part because a low sense of control is the most stressful thing you can experience, and also that motivation depends on a sense of autonomy. So we wrote our first book about how, how, do, how can we help kids develop this healthy sense of control or autonomy that's so so useful in, in every dimension of life. In the second book, we wrote this, we wrote this, what do you say? How to talk with kids to build motivation and stress tolerance in a happy home. We wrote to make it easier for parents to raise self-driven kids by, by giving tools that we've found helpful in communicating with kids about a variety of topics. Ned, why is empathy foundational to pretty much everything that you're trying to do with this book? Well, it's a great question. The, the, the principal reason is that we want, well, two reasons. One, we want kids to, we want parents to be effective in communicating to their kids. And logic doesn't calm hard emotions. Empathy, feeling listened to, feeling understood, that's what calms hard kids' hard emotions. It puts them in a position where they can actually then, you know, solve problems for themselves, you know, t- take a different attitude, put things in perspective. And empathy is also how we as parents convey to kids or to anyone that we understand them and that we can handle their hard emotions. Because when we, when kids, when they need our help, we don't want them to run to someone else or run away from us because we overreact. We want them to run to us so we can help in ways that, that they need our help. And we do that by saying, wow, that looks like you've had a hard day. I, I, I get how frustrated you are by that. And we don't try to talk them out of their hard feelings. We don't solve it. That might be things we do later down the line. But we always start with conveying to kids that we hear where they're coming from, even when we don't necessarily agree with it. I just wanted to add that I think one of the really thing, the things that's so important and useful about from early on, 
about this practice of empathy, letting kids know that I'm trying to understand your feelings. Is it help kids understand their feelings and give them language to understand their own feelings and to express mm. their feelings? Uh, so they become kind of emotionally literate. We, we help them become emotionally literate in a way that's very useful over time. And Bill, I have to admit, and maybe this is an embarrassing admission, that expressing that empathy does not come naturally for me. But as I've read more experts like you guys talking about merely just acknowledging the child's feelings, how that diffuses everything else, it really is a bit of a miracle step in everything else that you're trying to do to get through to your children, whether it is correcting a behavior or get them to think about a situation differently. Well, it's, it's so true. And I, I don't think it comes, comes naturally to any of us, Trey, in the sense that as mammals, we're wired to soothe our young and, and to protect, protect them and to soothe them when they're upset. And with, with, with babies, they can't soothe themselves and we, and we have to soothe them. And it's not intuitive for us when kids come to us to soothe them by, by empathy. We want to we probably say, oh, it's not so bad. The things will be okay. But that kind of reassurance or, or providing solutions or, or talking them out of their feelings just never helps kids feel heard. And the expression is that kids, that kids listen when they feel heard. And I think that we can communicate better. But it doesn't, I don't think they, <laughs> it doesn't come naturally to me either. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just that so it is a practice. It's a practice. And the first couple of times we do it, it's just kind of weird how often kids respond in a way that, 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 that is appreciative. You're getting me. Okay. I, 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 th- th- yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what I'm feeling. And then we can help them. We can help them if, if that feeling is not particularly helpful or the way they're looking at things is particularly helpful. We can help them shift, but, but until they feel heard, it's hard to help them. And Ned, you guys lay out a four-step process of helping to deal with kids' emotions. It starts with staying calm and thinking of your kids' strong emotions as a great opportunity to connect. Number two is understand and accept rather than judge. Be curious rather than accusatory. Number three is reflect and validate their feelings, which is where that empathy really comes into play, obviously. And step four is to explore, to ask follow-up questions. What do you mean by that last step? Building on what Bill said, you know, we want kids to explore their feelings, explore their hard emotions, and we also want them to be able to think about other ways that maybe they could have handled this or maybe a different situation going forward. You know, we talk about in our first book, The Self-Driven Child, of parents thinking about themselves as consultants rather than managers. And so if you were a you know, business consultant to me, you, you'd listen to my problems, you'd ask me a lot of follow-up questions, and then you might say, well, have you considered this? I wonder if it would help if you did this. I know someone else who's found this helpful. And so as parents, we naturally have our whole world of experience that we want to share with kids. But And so once we've made kids feel that we understand them, that we worked really tried to see where they're coming from, we've calmed their hard emotions and stayed calm with them. Now in a, in a perfect world, they've calmed down, we've calmed down, we're on the same team, we're working together. And we start saying, well, is there another way? I wonder if there's another way we could have approached this. Is it perhaps, I, I might be helpful if you thought about it this way. And we, as parents, we always want to give our kids really good advice and really good solutions or help them find that, though, that, those solutions. And we do that after we've primed them and put them in an emotional state 
where their prefrontal cortex, the decision-making problem-solving part of the brains are back online. And they start exploring ways that they could, they could handle that situation again, if it ever popped up. And Bill, psychologically speaking, why is it important, even if you are adding an assist to make sure that the kids, that these kids are coming to those conclusions on their own oftentimes, or at least they feel like they're coming to those conclusions on their own? Yeah. Well, part of it, Trey, is that we want kids to, to, to become good problem solvers. They want them to have the experience that they can handle stressful situations themselves. And it doesn't mean, that, especially when, when you got little kids you know, that, that they don't know how to solve problems, we help them. But, but, but we don't try, what we don't want to do is try to force solutions on them. And we, we want to give them a, a chance to kind of figure things out themselves because it's that experience of having something stressful happen and activating your, your brain's prefrontal cortex and going into coping mode to try to solve it that being able to do that successfully, that's what gives kids the confidence that they can handle stressful situations and then builds what we call stress tolerance or the ability to function well but under stress as opposed to avoiding or, 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 to, or, or to freaking out. And so uh, we, we just think that that from this, as Ned mentioned, this thinking of ourselves more as, as, as consultants to our kids, especially as they get older, than as their manager, their boss, or the homework police. Um, Part of that is we don't want to force our advice or force help on kids that they don't want because we want them. We don't, we, don't, we don't want them fighting stuff that's be useful to them. We want to encourage them to make decisions. And this point you're making, we want them to be able to solve their own problems as much as possible. So when a kid comes to, to us with a problem, we can ask ourselves, remind ourselves, whose problem is it? Because we're wired to solve, to soothe our kids, it's easy to jump in. So we should do this or this, and yet. That, that deprives the kid of the opportunity to use his brain in a way that will give him the confidence that he can handle stressful situations. And Ned, speaking of the language of a parent consultant, what is an authoritative parenting style and why does research show that it actually works really well? It's a great question that, you know, the 60 years of research has, has really lumped parenting styles into three types. Lazy fair, which is like, do whatever you want, kid, you know, and, and, and no no oversight, no no regulation. And that's not too not too healthy a place for kids to grow up in. And on the other end, there's authoritarian. It's my way, the highway, no questions. This is the way it is, kiddo. And right smack in between that is authoritative. And it's, it's really high love and high discipline. And we, as parents, we have natural authority. You know, we're, we're more experienced. We're taller. We have credit cards, right? You know, we have wisdom. <laughs> we, we have advice to share. And we want to use this where, where a, a, a good authority, whether it's in the household or in our, in, our, in our world, you know, is in control, right? But also seeks our input and works with us. And when a perfect world, we try to find solutions together and not sh- shove stuff down kids' throats. Because as, as Bill mentioned before, in that experience, all of us, people just, nobody likes to be told what to do, right? And what will happen if we do it in an authoritarian way rather than authoritative, kids will reflexively resist what is in their own best interest just because it's really stressful to feel like you're being told what to do in the, and you don't have a sense of control you know, in your own life. I think that makes a whole lot of natural sense. And Bill, in talking about this subject in the book, y'all also suggest that parents don't try too hard to rescue kids, which is Hmm. something that is probably a little bit more difficult because naturally you do want to shield them from this dangerous world. But why can't rescuing also be counterproductive to the overall cause? (laughs) You know, in our first book, we we, we talk about um, 
this research with this rats that really that helped kind of help help us understand how useful the sense of control is. And there's rat A and rat B, and they're in plexiglass cages, and their tails are outside the cage. It has a little electrode on it. Rat A tail gets shocked, and there's a wheel in the cage. And rat A discovers that when he turns the wheel, the shock stops. Rat B, same thing, gets shocked at the tail, turns the wheel, and nothing happens. And rat, the shock doesn't stop for rat B until rat A turns the wheel. Rat A develops a sense of the, the confidence, I can handle stressful situations. I, there's a way that I can control it. And rat B doesn't have that. Even though he got rescued by rat A, he didn't have that experience. Rat A be, be, uh, grows into a, a rat as an adult that's almost impossible to stress. Rat B is a nervous wreck. And that's why it, it's we, certainly there are times where we have to swoop in and, and, and to help our, save our kids from real danger. There, there are times it's not, it's not black and white. But, for, but, but the, the idea, again, is that our goal is for kids to develop high stress tolerance, to be really good problem solvers. And when something stressful happens, to go into coping mode as opposed to, to relying on us to, or, or batting away our attempts to help them. I think if we're honest, all of us as, as parents and even as, as younger people can re will reflect on the hard things that we've gotten through. And, and it's sort of like, you know, we're proud of our scars off and sort of badge of honor, right? And talk about, God, that was the worst. You know, I was talking about to college kids and this guy going on about a 29 mile hike and they ran out of water and he went on and on, you know, and, and you, I could just feel how grim it was. But the sense of pride that he have, you know, basically, dude, let me tell you about the day that I had, right? <laughs> and it's that confidence of knowing, let me tell you about the day that I had that gives him the, the sense that I can handle hard things because you just don't learn to handle hard things unless you handle hard things. There's just, there's no other way to do it. You don't read about it in a book, right? Or watch it on a YouTube video. You got to get out and do stuff. And it's so hard because as parents, we don't want our kids. To, Let me, I'll swoop in. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll send the ranger with water. Oh my gosh. You know, if the kid's going to die. Yeah. But up until uh, so many things that are, are simply unpleasant, that are just, they're distressing, but they're not, they're really not injurious to kids. You know, the blessing of a skin, knee, so on and so forth. I mean, if you can't, you don't play football without getting pretty bruised up, right? And that's part of the experience of being a football player. And it's part of the experience of, of, of living life with gusto. Well, and if we're talking about things like skin knees, a skin knee, a child will treat that as seriously or as laxly as the parent who's either hmm. walking up to them calmly to see what's going on or freaking out because they see a little bit of blood themselves. Right, Bill? That's exactly right. <laughs> There's a story in the book about a, like an 11-year-old kid who, who – climbs a tree and the parents are talking him out of it. Or did, he's, I can't remember whether he's... he's Wasn't the skateboard in the jump? Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> skate, skate, skateboard. His parents are trying, it's too dangerous. He does it and he breaks his arm. And on the way to the, the hospital, he says, it was totally worth it. You know? <laughs> 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 yeah. And so, yeah, it, it, it is um, something that is simply, you know, I, I was in, I was in uh, lecturing in Houston a couple of years ago before the pandemic. And I happened to mention... Um, the, a, a very elite school in Washington, D.C. And after the lecture, this woman came up to me and said, I'm a therapist at the Menninger Clinic here in, in Houston, which is really an outstanding mental health uh, place in Houston. said, we know this independent school in D.C. really well because so many of the graduates get into the most elite colleges, but they can't handle the challenges emotionally, so they take a medical leave and they come here for treatment. 
And she said to the one, they just haven't had the experience of managing their own life, including managing their own stress. You know, they've had a lot of people kind of running interference for them or swooping in to help them. But it's, we, want, we want to play this long game. And we want kids, before we send them off to college, we want them to have some experience handling stressful things because that's what gives them that confidence. That gives them, when, stress, when stressful, something stressful happens, they cope. They don't freak out. They don't avoid. And that's part of the reason why you guys, Ned, preach trying to communicate with a non-anxious presence. For a parent who is maybe just a little bit anxious naturally, is there a good way to go about this? Yeah, there are a few things, you know, and part of the reason we brought this is that all emotions are contagious, right? You know, fear is contagious, but, you know, the, the Navy SEALs, their mantra is calm is contagious. You know, the Reverend Billy Graham, courage is contagious. And so to your, your point about the kid with a skin knee, you know, we, we, we want to we be concerned, but we don't want to be overly concerned because that doesn't convey courage to children. It, conv- it conveys fear. Now, I recognize, we recognize that, you know, from a brain level, some people are just more wired this way. They're like, well, dude, it's not that big a deal. We'll, we'll all get through this. And other people, they just get, they get upset more easily. And so this isn't to point a finger at all, at all but we want to move in this direction. And two things that can help a lot, I mean, apart from self-care, your own regulation, you know, making sure you're in a happy place, well-rested, all that kind of stuff. It can also help a lot to take the long view. Because when our kids are having a really sucky moment in their lives, we, we, we have these fears that they're going to get stuck. And we fall into these traps of, of catastrophizing, of fortune telling, thinking my kid who's got a, a C on a you know, quiz in fifth grade is going to have a C life. And it's just, it's, 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 it's fear-based thinking. And if we can take the long view, including reminding ourselves of the hard things that we got through and remind ourselves that most of the time things work out and most of the time there's a plan B and most of the time there's another way to make this up. It's much easier for us to convey confidence and courage to and calm to our own kids if we can hold those thoughts ourselves. And the other thing I'll say and is that if you have a kid who's really struggling, and I know particularly these, these last couple of years, there are a lot of families whose kids are, you know, they were straight A students and now they're, you know, barely getting out of bed in the morning. And it's a scary thing. And I get that. But one of the challenges is, is parents, when our kids are really struggling that way, we kind of water the weeds, not the seeds, and we put all of our energy into the thing that isn't going well, almost like we'd be bad parents if we didn't. And sometimes it can be helpful just to ignore that a little bit and do this, put a lot of energy in a, in a very purposeful way in just enjoying your kid, even though parts of his life may be a wreck, but just remind yourself and him, dude, you're just a great kid. Yeah, but school sucks right now. Yeah, okay, you're not exactly lightening up in school right now, but you're just a great kid. And we talk and on and on and on about changing the energy because in our experience, people fall into the trap of thinking he'll feel better about himself when he's doing well. And in our experience, he'll do well when he's feeling better about himself. And a big part of that is us feeling great about him and not, and just loving the kid we got, even if circumstances aren't great. And I, you know, I, I tend to share this trait. And in my background, I had a family that had a few more things going on than I would have wished. My dad was an alcoholic. He just drank himself to death. My mom, mental health stuff. I spent three months in seventh grade in a pediatric psychiatric hospital, mm. which was tough, but honest to gosh, just when I needed that. But I came back to school and, you know, and I got back to doing things that matter to building the life that I wanted because I wanted my life to work out, right? I didn't plan all this stuff, right? But I wanted my life to work out. And in our experience, 
rarely do we see kids getting stuck long-term. And so if for everyone who's got a kid who's listening and things are hard right now, if you knew that this was just, this is part of their path. It's just the things that they're going through now and they're going to get through them and eventually have these wonderful lives in the ways that you wish for them. It'd be so much easier not to be afraid right now. Can I comment? <laughs> I, I was, I was at a wedding about five years ago and a friend of mine's kid got, got married and six of my friends came up to me and, to, and said, when you told me how slow the prefrontal cortex develops and how it's not really <laughs> mature until 25 or even early thirties, it made me so much less nervous about my own kids, six of my own friends. <laughs> so that, just to support your, your point that, I mean, that, and they can incredibly let people know that, that I, I can see a way for your kid to get from a, this hard place to a better place. It, it's, it's really useful. Well, and to expand on the prefrontal cortex point and also what you were just saying, Ned, part of the reason why kids are so great is because the prefrontal cortex is underdeveloped, which means that our kids are just insanely creative. They can make mm -hmm. something out of nothing. They are very communal, and uh, that means they're always willing to play with just about anybody else. And there are other benefits to that prefrontal cortex being as underdeveloped as uh, what kids are dealing with through their single digit and teenage years too. Well, it's such a good point. And, you know, the, the neuroscientists use the term plasticity, right? The yeah. brains develop in the ways that they're used. And this is part of the, why to, to build on, on Bill's point, that we want kids, in, in your point, Trey, we want kids to, to, to explore and, and figure out cool ways to use their time and build, and build their lives. But we also use this as a way to, to have them to tolerate, deal with things that are hard, you know, have some setbacks, have some challenges, and develop that grit and resilience that we really want to have when we go out into real life. And again, it isn't that we stand back and say, it's all you kid. It's that we, but we're there that we offer support. We offer help. We let kids make decisions for themselves as much as they can, or we can tolerate. We let kids try to figure out solutions to their own problems because it's that experience those experiences that make her kid like rat A, who says, well, I, I handle that pretty well. I, be, I bet I can handle other stuff too. Where rat B, if he's the one who is getting saved, he's just a nervous wreck. And then you failure to launch and playing video games in your basement forever. I'm teasing. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, unless you're in China, apparently, which they, uh, oh, I guess, right. banned yeah. video games yeah. for their kids until the weekends. Right. right. Yeah. It's embarrassing admission time for me once again. I have to be the bad cop at times in my family, and that means telling my kids no to pizza for dinner every night or ice cream after dinner every night or any number of other things that they want to do that I realize that they don't quite understand the idea of moderation enough to be able to make that decision for themselves. But my eyes were really opened at various points in this book, but especially with what you guys wrote about the words yes and no. How do yes and no affect the brain differently, according to research, Bill? Yeah, it's it's just so interesting, Trey. That uh, that when when they study, when you look at the neurochemistry, just just hearing the word no, you see this this big cascade of stress hormones, and you see it when you're doing imaging studies, you see activation in, in these stress centers in the brain. Um, and the the interesting thing that we learned in preparing for this book was that negative interactions, ne negative words to kids are much more powerful than positive. I mean, they just have a much bigger, much bigger reaction. And so we, we mentioned, uh, and, and certainly we, we, we aren't suggesting at all, Trey, that we don't set limits. And ideally we, we work out limits with our kids as opposed to, because I, I, I told you, told you so, 
But we, we want to set limits and kids can't make all their own decisions. But we want them to do it is to be good decision makers. And we want them to help practice making decisions. Uh, Ned, do you want to add on? Well, yeah, and so you know, so with that, if we know that positive words are less powerful but more really important, we the there's a John Gottman, John and Julie Gottman are these relationship experts, and they in their study on on relationships, really marriages, found that we want to have we want to aim for a ratio of five positive words to to one negative, and so if your kids say, well, can I have ice cream for dessert? It's just, rather than saying, well, no, you can't have ice cream. We had it three days in a row, or you'll rot your teeth out, or what's wrong with you, little rat? muffin you can say oh sweetheart i'd love to have ice cream tonight but 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 you know our, our rules we talked about this you know that we're going to have dessert you know have it mostly on the weekends and one time midweek and that's what we agreed to and gosh you know i'd really like to say yes but but for right now i'm going to say no and so and so much and that may feel like a lot of blather to people but so much of it is is not the what but the how and it's it's um there's a wonderful guy named Iran McGinn who, ta- who talks about how we make re- deposits to our relationship, how we keep this kind of positive um, vibe to our relationships. And he said, it's simply that we show care and respect, right? Mm. And so you can say, well, no, that's terrible for you. Well, that's showing care, right? You know, that you'll end up with, you know, bad health outcomes, but it doesn't feel that respectful. And so when we can just be a little bit more gentle and b- because we want to have this long-term relationship, with our kids that keep in mind that we're going to have a relationship with them as adults longer than we'll have them with as kids. But we also want in things like ice cream, we want our words to become the words that the kids have, the, the words that are inside their own heads. So that maybe, you know, three months, three days or three months or three years down the line, when they're thinking, maybe I should have ice cream again. And they have dad's voice in the head saying, you know, maybe having ice cream every day isn't such a good thing for me to do. I'll, I'll wait and hold off and really enjoy it on the weekend with my friends. And, the, and, and our words can become their internal dialogue. And a lot of people in their self-talk, they're really harsh on themselves in ways that they wouldn't talk to other people. And so we want to be at least as gentle with our children as we are with a stranger on the street so that our kids, as they grow up and they try to hold themselves to, to standards and to rules and regulations, are also gentle and effective in their own self-talk. I'll just add that this John Gottman, who Ned mentions, who's one of the world's experts on relationships, who says if we want kids to, to treat others respectfully, we should treat them respectfully. And that, that's where we, we have a chapter about limit setting. And, and, and we're all for, I mean, kids, kids feel insecure if, there, if there's not, not limits, if kid, kids feel I, I can do anything I want, it makes them hugely anxious because they know they aren't ready to handle that level of responsibility. So, but, but the idea is ideally we work out limits with, with kids. What I can live with, what you can we kind of have a negotiation, we come to something we can both live with because then, then, it's, then, we, then we get buy-in for it and we, we aren't just a, a policing kids. And, and that, that really does help them learn from their experience. And, and, the, the root of the word discipline really is, is to teach. And, and that's what we're trying to do is teach our kids to learn from their experience. A common cliched piece of advice for parents to their kids who are maybe a little bit nervous or not feeling good about themselves mm-hmm. with engaging in an activity is, come on, kiddo, just do your best. But in the chapter titled Pep Talks, you say that just doing your best is not necessarily a great strategy for the parent. Why is that, Ned? Well, part of it is who's, who gets to determine what best is, right? You know, particularly with, with kids, 
you, you know, we are, we are, our interest in both of these books is in helping kids to develop internal or intrinsic motivation, meaning they're, they're working hard because they want to work hard. They're not doing it to meet someone else's expectations where, where they then have to be bribed or threatened all the time. And if, if you, if you look at the work of, of like Peter Gray, who's this expert on play, he said that we do it for the enjoyment of doing it. And we want kids, we want kids to work hard at the things that they do, but in a perfect world, they're paying attention to what their best is. When there's this wonderful cartoon where there's a little girl and she's like four or five or six, she's drunk, painting, you know, crayons, some, some, uh, made some picture and she holds it up to her parents and said, is this my best work? <laughs> and, and it, it's, it's not the model that we want to have because uh, kids who are raised that way are then constantly looking for other people to, 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 to tell them that, that it's good enough, but also for people to tell them that it's good. Otherwise they don't want to do it. When, when kids get wired for external validation, they really won't do anything unless they get, you know, threats or, or get a reward. And so we, and I'll say this though, that we want kids to work as hard as they can, particularly getting good at something, whether it's sports or music or school or anything, because it's so good for the developing brain. But this, but this idea that it has to be your best all the time actually creates fear because rather than kind of this growth mindset of, of looking at how much better I've gotten, the skills that I've acquired, it's constantly measuring yourself against some undefined, unreachable 100%. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, Trey. I work hard at most things that I do, but the idea that I'm giving my max capacity all the time, if I told you that was the case, I'd be lying through my teeth. <laughs> That'd be very unhealthy. Bill, when is it proper to offer up that praise to a kid who has done something either good or even adequate? Well, you know, I, I think that, um, that that there's controversy about praise as opposed to kind of encouraging words or pointing out, I'm just noticing you did this way. I, I personally think that Anytime you feel to, to compliment your kid, it, it, it's great. Hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I think that, 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 that we, we want kids to, in part because we want kids to know that we have to understand themselves. You really worked hard at that. I, I, I see that, but man, that, that, that's, incre- that's incredible. How did, how did you manage to do that? Those kind of comments, they're respectful to kids. They put a focus on, on what kids are good at. I think it, I think it's good at, at any time. You know, if we just get reflexively that good job, good job, good job, <laughs> that's not so good. But I think that really precise feedback about kids. What here's what I'm noticing. Here's what I'm appreciating about you, is great. And and I'll just add that part of the reason that that, that I that we wrote this thing about not always doing your best is that it's conditional. You know, I I, I don't need you to have all A's, but I do need you to do your best at all times. And I and I I think mm. it's healthy to tell kids. I love you as much whether you do a half-assed job on something or whether you do a good job. <laughs> so, Ned, if uh, just do your best is not a very good pep talk, what are some good motivators that parents can use to try and inspire their kids to uh, do the best job possible and not worry too much if it's not perfect? With praise, if we can praise things that, that, that kids control rather than in psychology, we talk about an external versus an internal locus of control. So as Bill is saying, you know, I noticed that you really worked hard on that, or it looks to me like you, you actually did that twice to check that. Was that right? Taking note of, of things that are part of the process that things can, can, the kids can control the how, as opposed to great job, you got an A, because then that's completely about the outcome where we want kids to focus on, on, you know, sort of strong inputs. 
if we go back to this model, um, in both books, we talk about fostering intrinsic motivation. And it turns out there's a model for how we can help kids not just work hard, but want to work hard. And it's based on three three foundational psychological needs. One, a sense of competency, that I'm good enough at this, I can handle this pretty well. Two, a sense of relatedness or connection to mom, dad, the teacher, the coach, whatever it happens to be. And three, a sense of autonomy. We talk about this, the autonomy piece, especially at great length in, in the self-driven child. So if we're giving praise, we wanna use words that express confidence in the kid's competence, but also support our related, the relationship and their sense of autonomy. So, you know, with, with if you've got a kid who plays sports, right? One of the things you can just say, I love watching you play. It's just so cool. And boy, did you hustle out there because it's emphasizing my relationship. I love watching you play. It's so fun. Autonomy. I'm not telling you what to do. It's just cool that you're doing. And I noticed that you're working really hard at that and the competency that you, you're good enough to be out there. And so much of what we do as parents trying to encourage kids is actually works against their autonomy or it works against their relationship, their relatedness, right? My current focus right now is, is about homework. Uh, and I, I've been asking kids, how many times a day do your parents tell you, shouldn't you be doing your homework? And it is just off the charts. Hmm. And they think that parents feel that that is going to make kids work harder. But what happens is kids have to sacrifice their own autonomy to maintain the relationship with their parents. Because if they tell mom or dad to buzz off, it's really kind of scary that because they don't want their parents to be unhappy with them. So just saying things, I love to watch you work hard. You know, it's fun to watch you, you know, play sports, you know, I'm just, or even just enjoying their company. It's, I just, I love that you're my kid and I love that you're into whatever, because I think parents so often think, I, what are the words that I can make my kid want this? Well, if we're honest, you can't make your kid want anything. You can't make a kid who doesn't like baseball like baseball or vice versa, but you can invest in energy into your connection with your kid and supporting their sense of autonomy, which are two out of three pieces for that inner drive that we want, to, we want them to have. Go ahead, Bill. I just wanted to ask Ned, how often do the kids say, when the parents say, Shouldn't you do? Shouldn't you be doing your homework? The kids say, "Oh, thanks for reminding you, Mom. I forgot all about it." <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. I'm still waiting. <laughs> so uh, you know, it's interesting that you say all of that, Ned, because these last two decades have really seen a rise in helicopter parenting, where you have these parents constantly hovering over every aspect of their kids' life. But this is obviously, especially, the case in sports, where it's almost like they're projecting onto these kids their own hopes and dreams that fell short much earlier in life. And, you know, they're trying to push these kids to become these finely tuned athletes that can get college scholarships and perhaps go professional at some point for those things. But all it seems to do in an overwhelming majority of instances is just burn the kid out on that subject and ultimately end up resenting the parents in the long term as a result, too. It's exactly right. We were out in Palo Alto and, the, and I, I overheard Bill was having a conversation. A dad came up and said, I got a, I got a seven-year-old kid and he loves tennis and he's playing like, he's playing like five, hours a, uh, five hours a week. He's really into it. But the kids who are at the elite level, they're playing like 30 hours a week. How do I get my kid to want to play 30 hours a week? And Bill said, you don't, you don't. 
if he if he if he's giving words about that and that's all he wants to do, well then you figure out a way to make that opportunity available to him. You know, and you 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 drop you know martial arts or you find an extra court open on a Sunday and you give him that opportunity. You know, when when a kid has a in our first book we talk about the passionate pursuit of pastimes. And if a kid loves something, you give him as all the support and runway you can. But so many things, if we go back to that Peter Gray of, of kids doing things just not to get into college. My goodness, a seven-year-old is not thinking about a college scholarship. <laughs> He's thinking about, I love playing basketball. My friends are so cool. Why do I have to do homework? Can I go play more basketball? I mean, I see so kids, I have a friend who's a, his kid was a recruited lacrosse player. And we were hanging out for a weekend with him and he went out there and he was working on, on throwing and catching a ball on the opposite hand off a wall for two and a half hours, the same move for two and a half hours. Do you know how boring that is? Yeah. He was doing it because it mattered to him. And we take so many childhood activities and we weaponize them and we got to get a coach and we got to get a program to the best that we can. We want to allow children's activities to remain children's activities, meaning there's no adult instruction. And we just let kids go and do this. Cause I don't know about you, Trey, man, I'm 51. I, I mean, I didn't have, we, I mean, we just went out and played. I mean, I played like 10 hours of wiffle ball a day with my friends and was just, there's nothing better. Got to go have dinner. I'll come back. Right. And we do it over and over and over and over. And now we're, we're all putting kids in, in, in minivans and ride them all over the place. And for kids who are elite athletes, and they need to travel to a different state, apparently, to find competition. Okay. <laughs> but man, oh, man, oh, man, you do that because your kid is asking it, not because you're pushing it. Because I see all of these kids who have spent years of their lives, and they get to 15 or 16 or 17, and they're done. They don't, they're done. They just don't want to do it anymore because it's no longer a source of, of joy. It's, it's become a job, and it's something they have to do, not something they want to do. And please don't do that to your kid if they've, if they've got something they just love to do. Bill, would you like to add anything there? Well, j- just that I-, I was just reflecting on a, f- a friend of mine uh, is, is, does refereeing for high school and um, high school uh, soccer and football games. And he says that the, the, the local referees association, this is true all over the country. They can't, they can't recruit enough referees because it's so punishing because they get so much, they get so much negative stuff from parents, so much abuse from parents and sometimes physical abuse from parents. And so I think we've made we've made turned youth sports into something that's really quite dystopian in some, <laughs> some way. And and I really think that I agree with everything Ned said. I think I think it's fine. But my my own kid, who, who kid, uh, kid the first year in coach pitch baseball, never made contact with the ball, but wanted to be a good baseball player. And I, and I, I found this tennis coach who knew a lot about the baseball swing. And we met with him two or three times and, and, and he gave him what I loved about it is he gave him homework to do. Hmm. And, and it was fun. Maybe we would do these exercises. It was fun. My kid really wanted to do it. He wanted me to help him. And it was completely fun for me, but I wasn't driving. it. I, I was responding mm-hmm. to, to I, I want to be a better baseball player. And, and I spent hours with him myself. Um, but I, I, th- I think that if we have this idea that somehow it's crucially important that, that kids do really well and, and, and be able to play in college, we're just laying our stuff on our kids. Bill, Chapter 6 is communicating healthy expectations. You guys point out that there are two kinds of expectations, healthy and toxic. What is the language difference between those two sorts of expectations? I think, put, put simply, it's uh, I have confidence, then you can 
that you can do whatever, oh, and I require you to, 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 to do this in order to approve of you. And I think that the, the toxic expectation is the idea that my love and my, my, my approval of you is conditional on how you perform. And, and, and the healthy is that I have confidence. So there, there's a guy, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, I think it's Haynes, William Haynes, um, who studied expectations. And it turns out that parental expectations are very highly related to kids' achievement. But it's not in the form of, I expect you to do this, you need to do this. It's, it's, I have confidence that you can. And I, th- and I think that I, the older I get, and I, I have kids in their, 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 their mid to late 30s, the older I get, the more humble I get about knowing what's right for a kid. You know, I, 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 because I don't know what, what, what kind of life that they want. So I, I, I think a lot about that, this idea of I don't have any particular expectations for how your life is supposed to turn out. I don't require you to be a certain level of student or, or, or is that what I want you to do. I want to support you in any way I can to create a life that you want and to develop yourself so that you have something useful to offer this world. And I have confidence that, that you can accomplish what you want to accomplish. I think that we, we think that's healthier than this more conditional. I, I, I need you to, or I expect you to, to, to do this, or I'll be disappointed if you don't. Go ahead, Ned. Again, it, it seems to me that, that, what those what those what that language feels like to a kid right if you have the voice in the back of your head of your mom your dad saying i bet you can do it i bet you i bet you can do this right and that sense of oh yeah you know and 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 that that constant like little cheerleader in the back of your head versus that voice of i expect you to do this i expect you to do this and like someone's hovering over you the whole time like dude suck it up step up you're i expect you to do this right because the one is just this this little voice of encouragement of a little little train that could right (laughs) versus you know oh my gosh i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm constantly in the state of 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 being of letting down my my parents bill just net net particularly because he he sees uh, really high, a lot of really highly achieving kids for, for test prep when, when they're 16 or 17 years old. Many of them say, you know, I just got to be minus in a test. Don't tell my parents. So they'll, 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 they'll be really pissed at me. And that, that I think that, that that's not what we want in, in, for, for kids. They had to go ahead, buddy. Yeah, I was going to say there's a story from this is years ago. I, ha- I was working with this kid. Um, and he was dyslexic. Uh, so reading was hard for him. Vocabulary is not you know, hard for him. A pretty good math student. And when his mom, when his mom dropped him off, she was basically in tears. She's like, he's never going to go to college. He only has a thousand on the SAT. I mean, it's just, it was a lot of drama that I didn't think needed to be there, but she loved her kid. So doing all this work, doing all this work, doing all this work. This kid was this athlete and he was just as determined as could be. And he did this section of, of SAT reading, which was hard for him. And it might have been a little bit easier compared to other ones. And I sat down, I looked at him, and I, I kind of paused, and I got silent from him, and I sort of smiled. And he's like, what? I said, well, <laughs> you, did, you did really well on this. You know, if you did this on the other sections, maybe that won't happen. But if you did, if you did this on these other sections, you know what your score would be? I was like, what? I said, they get you 1,400. And he's like, and his eyes get wide as saucers. So I go out to the waiting room and his mom sits up and she's standing right across from me. And I do this with him behind me, behind me, very purposely, sort of boxed him out. He's a basketball player. And I say this, so I say, come, say, repeat the same thing to his mom. And still remember this 20 years ago. And she covers her mouth with her hand and her eyes fill with tears like, oh my gosh, right? And he, of course, is looking over my shoulder, seeing this whole thing. And it's this confidence of, I bet you can do this. And she's just like, oh my goodness. And the kid goes off. I get this call later. She, she calls 
And she said, last night his scores came online and I was afraid to go and look at them because I was so afraid he was going to do terribly and he'd be upset. And I hear the scream and I think, oh my God, he's dying. It's like, you know, Star Wars and the trash compactor, right? And he comes flying down the stairs and he has gotten precisely a 1400. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> he was a cool kid. It was a great mom. It was a great mom. But the, yeah, the power of belief. I mean, you see this in sports I and mean, the power of belief is a really big deal. But as Bill said, it's the power. I bet you can do this. I bet you can do it. It's different from I expect you to do this because we, we want we want to have that voice of my mom and dad are behind me. And, and they're, you know, the wind beneath my wings, not not pushing me, pushing me all the time, because that's just it's not a fun place to be. We can all agree, Bill, that happiness is a great thing, but much like everything else that we've talked about today and that y'all discuss in this book, you can't force happiness on your kids. But how can we help kids understand how to achieve their own happiness? It's a great question, Trey. And we have this chapter in the book that's talking with kids about the pursuit of happiness, in part because... Um, Ned and I both followed the work of Lori Santos, who uh, is a psychology professor at Yale, who lived in a residential dormitory, maybe still does, uh, with Yale undergrads, undergraduates, and was, was struck by just how unhappy they were, and th- that they were just so busy and so preoccupied with achievement that they just didn't enjoy any of the, the, the incredible things that Yale has to offer and so she, she started teaching that this class on happiness and, and what, what do we know about makes people happy? And it was, became quickly became the most popular course in the history of Yale university. And also uh, again, in, in, I was in Texas two or three years ago. And I asked this group of, of student uh, uh, student leaders, high school student leaders. And I said, how many of you want to be happy as adults? And they all kind of sheepishly raised their hands. Yeah, duh, that's what we all do. And I said, what do you understand it takes as an adult to be happy? And this one kid said, we understand that if we get into a good enough college, that everything else would be set. And I go, <laughs> how, could they be, how could they be so far off? And we thought, why do we, why do we want, wait until kids are miserable in elite colleges to teach them what we know about, about happiness? And so we talk in this chapter, Trey, about this, this one formulation of, of what contributes to happiness, including some of it is your basic kind of disposition, your basic mood, um, which you know, you, there's some genetic limits on that. But there's also your active engagement about, this, as Ned was saying, the stuff you're passionate about, about your relationships, how important relationships are. And we, we tend, oftentimes we tend to discount how important relationships are because we favor achievement and how important doing something that's meaningful to you is. And so many young people now who are just jumping through the hoops trying to achieve that they're, they're, they're depressed, they're unhappy because it's just not meaningful. They don't have that sense that I'm not doing something I'm meaningful, meaningful to me. Um, and achievement's a part of it, but it's only a part of it. And I think that, it, that we can really help kids by talking about our own experience, our own experience of, of the stuff that's meaningful to us, how important our relationships are, and letting kids know that I, I, I care as much about the stuff that you're, I, I always told my kids, I care as much about sports, the stuff that you, about baseball and softball in their cases, as I do about your schoolwork. Because I, I know that, that, that you're passionate about it. It's really good for your brain. And it simply makes you happy. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we see so many young people who go to college and they're really successful, but they're depressed and they can't enjoy their success. And we want our kids to be successful as they want to be. 
but we want them to be able to enjoy their success. Matt, go ahead. When I, was, I, when I hear you talk about that, Bill, when we think about sports, I mean, they're, they're kids who are, <laughs> they're some of the worst players on the team, on, on maybe some of the worst teams in the, in the, in the city or the state. And, and they have almost they have pretty much zero chance of winning the, the the championship or anything right but they still do it right because it's engaged right and it's and it's the, it's the relationship the camaraderie of the teams right you know the school spirit all of that stuff right and and, and they're not with us they don't have a snowball's chance in hell <laughs> you know being a professional athlete but it's still this incredible sense of engagement a meaning relationships all that stuff right and it brings them happiness. All right, the last few minutes we're going to spend uh, is on a subject that is something that's perplexing for just about every parent out there. It has to do with technology, and y'all actually lump sleep and technology into the same chapter, which I completely understand before reading the chapter, but especially after doing so. Why do y'all consider technology along the lines of food than any other potentially addictive thing when talking about how to help kids understand that point of moderation with technology, Ned? Well, it's a good question because, you know, if I have an addiction to, to gambling or to drugs, I can live a life without without gambling or drugs, right? Because most people do. But technology at this point, you really can't be part of, you know, America or countries like it and, and avoid technology, right? You're not, we're not going to turn back to, to, to the 1800s. Hmm. And so we, we, are, we are all going to have lives that involve technology. And so the important thing that we as parents need to be doing is helping our kids learn to harness the potential, the benefits, all the upside of technology in ways that are balanced and healthy. And that isn't easy to do because the current geniuses who are making all this stuff are making it so by definition, it isn't balanced or healthy. It's designed to be as addictive as it can possibly be because that's how these rascals make their money is they grab your attention, my attention and sell it off to the highest bidder. And so this, I mean, and we really think this is one of the great threats. I mean, you talked about, you know, China, you know, shutting down kids can't play video games. Wouldn't it be lovely if there were a way to play video games for a couple hours and enjoy the heck out of it? And then when you felt like that was satisfying, I'm done. I think I'll move on and go and do something else as opposed to feeling like it's all or nothing. So our feeling is that we really need to collectively as families, as schools, as communities, help young people learn to manage their use of technology in a healthy way in the same way that we as grownups have to have to find a healthy way to manage our own use of technology. Well, and Bill, one of the difficult things about that is it's well known at this point that technology companies are looking to find ways to further enhance that dopamine release with every time that you are clicking on an app or playing a particular game. I mean, they want you to play it more for obvious reasons. Right. And uh, I, I learned a couple of years ago that uh, there's a letter written to the, the president of the American Psychological Association that was signed by 200 psychologists asking them to censure psychologists working for technology companies who are using motivational and behavioral techniques, knowingly creating products that are as addictive as possible. And what I'm talking with, what, what's not effective in helping kids learn to manage their technology is, is saying, you, you need to get, get off that thing, it's just so stupid. We want to treat the, the we want to we want to start with empathy. Show, seek to understand first, and appreciate what 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 kids get out of this stuff. But we I, I when I talk with kids about it, I, I start there and I say I want you to know 
And I tell them the story about the, these 200 psychologists because these people are, 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 this is what we're up against. It's not just you. It's not like you're a weakling. This is what the, the people who are making this are some of the smartest psychologists in the world. And they're making this so it's almost impossible for you to stop. And I, I let them know that. I Certainly one of my friend's kids watched that, um, this is the social dilemma. Was it mm-hmm. yeah. yes, the social dilemma? A fifteen, a seventeen-year-old watched it with her mother and immediately deleted a bunch, a bunch of social media sites from her phone. <laughs> when she realized that the people are tracking you and, and that they're they're trying to do everything possible to, to sell your attention, as Ned said, to the, the highest bidding advertisers, and that they're manipulating you. And kids don't like to be manipulated. And, and so I, I think that we we want to let them know. This is kind of what we're up, up against, and, and you're going to have to figure this out because I can't be there to, 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 to monitor this for you all the time. So we, we, we talk about mentoring more than monitoring um, as a way to, to, to help our kids. But you're definitely right that the great challenge is that this is what we're up against. All right, one more quick question on consequences, because despite the best communication, kids will be kids at times, and they will do things that require consequences. When are consequences necessary, Ned? And what's the difference between helpful and harmful consequences? Well, we talked a couple of things. We talked about natural consequences, which are things that that occur whether there's any adult or parental involvement at all, right? So if, if your kid procrastinates and doesn't hand in something in time or doesn't do well on a test, I, I, you don't need mom or dad to, to, to point this out to them. They get that a feedback. You know, if, they, if they're late to practice and they have to run laps, that's, those are natural consequences. And one of the challenges that you talked about helicopter parenting before, Trey, is that as parents, we spend a lot of time protecting our kids from natural consequences and then turn around and try to educate them by lecturing them. And that's really backwards. We should do everything we can, to, unless it's going to be life ending, you know, or life, you know, altering to allow them to, to suffer the, 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 the natural cause and effect of, of these behaviors lead to those outcomes. When we talk about logical consequences of what we as parents and as families do to create rules, we really want to follow the four R's of Jane Nelson, a wonderful book called Positive Discipline, that the, 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 the consequences are revealed in advance. We don't make them up on the fly, particularly when we're angry. They're related, they're res- re- um, respectable, and they're reasonable. I struggle a little bit to understand why taking away a kid's cell phone is the appropriate punishment for every possible infraction known under the sun. It just doesn't, it just doesn't feel like it works. And, and partly we then see kids, parents say, like, I've taken away everything and, and he still won't behave. We, we understand, as Bill said before, that kids do well, particularly little guys, when there are rules and the regulations. And when you say, oh, well, remember what we talked about is if you, you know, if you, if you don't, if you don't brush your teeth, then the next day there are no sweets, right? And we're just, and we're, and we're letting kids know by gently enforcing calm, but firm, calm, but firm. When we enforce these, these uh, consequences, these rules that we have as families, it's a way for us as parents to let kids know that we're watching, that actually makes them feel safe. The real challenge is when we discipline, we so often do it in a state of anger, in which case we're, our brains aren't thinking as well as we, they might. And most importantly, our kids' brains aren't thinking that well. And if we remember that the root of the word discipline is to teach, we sometimes it just involves, you know, I'm pretty upset about what went down here, guys. And I really want to talk about that. I'm going to go walk around the block for a couple of minutes and, and sort of collect my thoughts. 
And then you come back and you have a conversation that, that again is respectful. It's calm. It's firm. You're holding kids accountable. They're doing it in a way that ultimately makes them much more likely to learn from their experience rather than just getting punished for their experience. Bill, final thought is yours. I, I just, Ned mentioned this Jane Nelson who wrote this classic book on discipline called Positive Discipline. And she, she asked this question, where did we ever get the crazy idea that in order to help kids do better, we have to first make them feel worse. Hmm. And I think that, that I, I just love that idea hmm. that, that the idea is we want kids to learn from their experience and we don't need to shame them. We, we don't need to, to use anger to help them learn. In fact, that they, 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 shame and anger, they, they don't learn as much. They, they're resentful and they, 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 they go into denial. They blame us. And if we, we, we respectfully, as Ned said, we, we, we work out, we work out family rules. We work out family limits. It makes sense to, to, to all of us well agree on. And we can always negotiate. We talk about having family meetings or collaborative problems. Uh, but, but, but that's, I, I asked my own kids uh, a, couple, a couple of years ago. And again, they're, they're in their mid to late 30s. Do you ever remember being disciplined? And my son, who's 35, said, I remember one time you gave me a, a pocket knife when I was like nine years old. And you saw me running with it, and you, you, you took it away for a couple of days. And it's, it's, I, I just wanted to think about it a little bit, then another chance. That's, a, that's a, all that either one could remember. Now, I, I didn't have hard kits, but I'm simply saying <laughs> that it's possible, I mean, it's theoretically possible, for, for the kids to learn from their experience and to help us. We think of ourselves more as teachers and helping kids learn. How did that go? What, what, what could you do instead? And that is necessary disciplinarians in the sense of laying down the law that, that we, we just kind of keep a focus ideally on our relationship with our kids. That's funny. I only remember one punishment from my childhood, and it's when my mom spanked me around the age of 10 or 11 with a wooden spoon. She spanked me once. I turned around and laughed because I think I had outgrown the spankings, <laughs> and she realized it in that moment. So she tried to spank me one more time even harder. The wooden spoon broke over my butt. My two younger brothers who were standing right next to me start laughing. I turn around and start laughing. She couldn't help but to start to laugh as well. And I guess to your point, the only reason I remember that is because at that point I had outgrown that uh, that consequence, I guess. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, and it's not saying a lot of parents say, I've tried everything, meaning I've taken away everything I can. And the kid just gets more and more, and more discouraged, more and more resentful. And, and we can't influence kids in a positive way when, when that happens. William Sticks-Rude is a clinical psychologist and a faculty member at Children's National Medical Center and George Washington University School of Medicine. Ned Johnson is the founder of Prep Matters and the co-author of Conquering the SAT, How Parents Can Help Teens Overcome the Pressure and Succeed. Together, they've written the national best-selling book, The Self-Driven Child, and no doubt their new one will also end up a bestseller as well. It's called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Talk, Tolerance and a happy home. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Guys, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this important book. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, Trent. Join me next time when I speak with science journalist Lee Cowart on Hurt So Good, the science and culture of pain on purpose. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at gentlemanjesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.